When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This podcast is part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club, a program designed to help all podcasts reach their full potential. For information about joining the Robots Radio Rocket Club, check out robotsradio.net. And welcome to the MCU Lorecast. I'm Captain Shanko. And I'm Psych88. Today we're finally entering one of those brighter corners that we mentioned on the tail end of some not so bright spots. <laughs> I'm looking at you, freak pool. <laughs> anyway, today we're talking about X Men First Class, and I'm actually really excited for this one. As am I. Just watching this, uh, watching it again for this uh, show, I was just like, oh yeah, this is what an X-Men movie should look like, at least somewhat. Yes, it certainly had its good points, and I, I think especially coming off of some of the very lackluster films that preceded it, this was a much needed breath of fresh air. It should be noted that this one appears between Origins and The Wolverine. Before we get into the actual movie, uh, Genesis, please remind everybody that... If you're looking for a spoiler-free zone, sorry, lovelies, you are in the wrong place. Thank you. Yeah, so this brighter corner starts at not-so-bright of a corner, because we're in Auschwitz. Yeah, we're, we're starting right here in young Nito's very traumatizing childhood, and there's a officer by the name of Klaus Schmidt who witnesses Eric when his mutant ability comes to light, bending the metal gate. And Schmidt orders Eric, once he kind of gets a hold of him, to just move a coin. And he can't do it at will yet. You know, he, he was in a moment of extreme duress the first time that he moved metal with his mind, and he cannot make himself or control himself in that way yet. So when he fails to do that, Schmidt kills his mom. Yeah. Um, he's, he's had a rough childhood. Uh, and of course, now that he is sad and angry, his power you know, manifests and he just obliterates the entire room and the guards. Yeah. Uh, extreme violence, to say the very least. I have to say, kudos on finding a guy who looked just like the kid from the opening because what they had done is they reused the stock footage from x-men that you know that opener at auschwitz and then for the scenes shot in the office uh they had to get you know someone new because it's been a decade between mo those movies and the kid they found was like a dead ringer for the guy in the in the stock footage so kudos impressive casting for sure I mean, of course, there's probably a little CGI, whatever, to uh, make the faces match. But I'd have to say, since that wasn't intended for at the time that it was originally shot to, like, manipulate that, that's some very good talent. Because it wasn't, it wasn't shot with that in mind when it was first shot. Yeah, I'm sure that, I'm sure makeup and lighting and all of that, too, had a lot, 
a lot to to play as well. But um, we also get to see a very young Charles Xavier, and he meets Raven, and you know she's this shapeshifter, and she is she's been told that she's a freak, so she's very uncomfortable. But Charles accepts her and says, you know, you're not going to be hungry anymore. You don't have to steal food. You're you're good. You can stay here. And he kind of lets her know, like, hey, I'm different too. I hear people and I, I can I can hear voices from everyone and I can't, you know, I can't stop it. It's just part of who I am. And he invites her to join the family. Really sweet of him. I, I have to wonder what his parents think. Hey, I found this I found this other child. She lives here now. <laughs> uh I mean that's a great question, can, especially considering his comic book origin move like his family in the comics is really messed up. But I have to say it is very interesting they decided to go this route with like Mystique and Charles because that is definitely not played at all in the first three movies. So already we are again retconning what's been established. Yeah, so several years later, it's 1962 now, and Eric's tracking down Schmidt. He wants revenge. And meanwhile, Charles is earning a doctorate and becomes a professor of genetics. We also get introduced to Moira McTaggart, who we've mentioned in prior films and seen a little bit from. They are not the same. No. No, the my, the Moria McTaggart that appeared at the end of uh, Last Stand is not this McTaggart now. It would be impossible. Why? Why does the Why does the logic never make sense? I uh, I I know they. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> that's that's like no. That's a good answer, and that's fair because I don't think they knew either. To be to be fair. I feel like she's here because she's important to the foundation of the first class in the comics, but the the stuff there, and we're going to discuss this later with another character that they've just pulled out of the timeline, it just doesn't make any sense. And already you had established McTaggart at the end as a geneticist, but now here she is, a CIA officer. So she's following a army colonel into the Hellfire Club. Uh, in you know, in order to gain intel and and Schmidt, who's now calling himself Sebastian Shaw, is there with Emma Frost, Riptide, and Azazel. It's an it's an interesting group. Shaw's face freaks me out. I mean, Bacon did a very good job playing this character. Now, like he physicality wise, he does not in any way match the Shaw of the comics, but. Bacon's charisma is just, uh, you know, worlds above and really taps into the Shaw of the comics. So he does a fantastic job here. I don't know. He plays, uh, he plays slimy bad guy really well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he does. So they threaten Hendry and, you know, Hendry advocates for deploying nuclear missiles to Turkey. Which, by the way, that's when we're at. So Shaw ends up killing him because he's the bad guy. He also absorbs energy and his powers have kept him young for a really long time. He is still smooth Kevin Bacon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No CGI required. We're looking looking at you, Uncanny Valley Magneto. Yeah. Speaking of Magneto and everyone else... Mora sees, you know, these powers and going off and everything. So she heads up to world-renowned geneticist Professor Xavier now to get his advice on mutation. Yes. So they're trying to convince Director McCone that, um, you know, mutants exist and that Shaw is a problem. I don't know how they, you know, would gloss over the fact that he's now, you know, killed an army colonel and not consider him dangerous but you know <clears throat> there has to be some question the an, another CIA officer invites them to division x you got to love how they're already throwing that in when the x-men established themselves because they were Xavier's men 
That's that's like the whole thing. And yet we've got Division X. Mm-hmm. I, um, whatever. Whatever. Yeah. Listen, it's the X-Men. Everything's got to have an X, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's got to have something. Except for Wolverine's love life. There's no X's. He only goes after taken women. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so Eric is attacking Shaw and Moira and Xavier, you know, end up finding it, finding them and they uh, rescue Eric from drowning. Shaw, slimy bad guy, escapes and Charles brings Eric into Division X and who else is there but a young Hank McCoy? And if Shaw's face bothers me, Hank's feet bother me even more. Yeah, uh, so it should be noted that his feet in the comics don't do that. Like, they're big, uh, and he can pick stuff up with them, but they aren't hands. <laughs> Sorry. It's got hands. Is what's going through my head right now. Uh, thank you, Dragon Age. <laughs> no, but yeah, his 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 hand feet really bother me, and they spend like I remember, and I and in the rewatch, just like they show them for just the foot for like way too long, in my opinion. Like it might be two seconds on screen where it's just a frame of his weird feet, but it's too much. But the man who owns the weird feet believes that Mystique's DNA could help to quote unquote cure his appearance because you know he's a a fuzzy blue guy. Well, he's not fuzzy. He's not fuzzy and blue yet. He's just he's just got hands for feet. So he wants to kind of change that, and he sees her morphing ability as a means to control one's physical appearance. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's like a a cure, right? Yeah. And, yeah, cure. and he doesn't... Yeah. There are a couple people that don't really like that terminology. Mm-hmm. Xavier uses Cerebro in order to find recruits to go up against Shaw. They end up recruiting a stripper, a cabbie, a prisoner, and, you know, just some guy that wanders around. Yeah, it's unclear what Sean Cassidy was doing or whatever at the time. It, like, his intro scene, he's hitting on a girl, and he's trying to show off. And, but it's, a, it's not clear what his job or anything else was. Whereas everyone else, you know, uh, the stripper, her name's Angel Salvador. You know, it's very clear what she's doing. Uh, the cabbie is Armando Munoz. And the army prisoner is Alex Summers. Yet again. Another character, called that seemingly at random, whatever. Yeah, and they all give themselves like the their their superhero names, and uh, Raven officially calls herself Mystique. Uh, Emma uses her telepathic powers in order to manipulate a Soviet general, and Charles and Eric end up capturing her and find out that Shaw's got some big plans to really shake up the order of the world. Uh, he wants to trigger like a mutant takeover, right? Mm-hmm. So he, you know, he ends up attacking Division X and kills everyone except for the mutants. And Shaw says, uh, you guys should join me. He invites them to join and Angel ends up accepting. But Alex and Munoz do not. Munoz does not make it out of this altercation. which is such a just disservice to the character which we will discuss in the other half of the show Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i i I know it It, i hate to see them just like they're throwing away a character for dramatic effect but they've already killed a ton of people they don't need more dramatic effect yeah we, we just had azazel he teleported he did basically the opening of x2 only Instead of just keeping himself at safe or whatever, he took every agent, teleported, you know, 100 feet up in the air and dropped them and they came back. So you got agents just landing haphazardly all over the place. And then, the you know, the bamfing sound, which, by the way, you know, there's a there's a hint for you. He's bamfing. He's got red skin. He's got a prehensile tail. Let you guess 
where that might be going. Mm-hmm. Back over in Moscow, because apparently Shaw can just get the heck around real fast. He's like, okay, hey, uh, USSR, uh, get those uh, missiles installed in Cuba, yeah? Yeah, and then he's wearing quite a hat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's wearing something quite, uh, quite identifiable, but it's not, it's not as important yet as, uh, as something. Yeah, um, I just gotta say, though, that, uh, Kevin Bacon does not wear that helmet half as well as Michael Fassbender or, or, uh, Sir Ian McKellen. It's definitely not made for him. <laughs> like a kid in a Halloween costume. It's, it's a little bit, uh, it, it, it was a choice. Uh, and he's, I mean, he's using it to block telepathy, which I suppose makes sense when your main guy who's going after you is a telepath. Mm-hmm. So he follows, so Shaw ends up following the Soviet fleet and, you know, because he's, he's got access to a submarine because he's the bad guy. He has everything. I guess. And and the ability to get around the world, like you said, incredibly quickly, just at will, it seems. Movie magic. Yep. They are going to use missiles to break up a blockade. Mm-hmm. Back with our good buddy, Hank, he goes to use his quote-unquote cure for himself, but it kind of has the opposite effect and makes him even more, you know, mutated and blue. Yeah, definitely blue. <laughs> Yeah, it backfires, and, and it's the opening to him being the beast. You know, that's covered real well. It's origin, so to speak. Uh, they end up taking the Blackbird to the to the blockade line, and Charles uses, he uses his telepathy to influence a sailor to destroy the ship with the missiles. Uh, Eric bypasses this by just using his magnetic powers to lift the submarine from the water and throw it up on the shore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, let's just trim the fat. So you're wasting too much time. During the battle, Eric ends up gaining the helmet from Shaw and Xavier is able to shut him down like he does once he has access to his head. And there's this really terrifying moment where Magneto's looking at that helmet and he's going, you know, you can't, if, you know, if I have this thing on, there's really nothing that can stop me because I think, you know, to some degree, he believes that Charles has held him back from the darker sides of him for sure. But he has always, he's always leaned into that darkness. And after hearing how Shaw feels um, about mutants, he uses his powers to kill Shaw by pushing that coin through his head and we see that charles is still in shaw's head and he's feeling all of that pain while trying to trying to stop what's happening but he can't that's just it's excruciating to see and you know hats off to mcavoy he's an incredible actor and he he owned that scene indeed the fleets having seen everything going on as the mutants kind of fight with each other they're like well instead of starting world war three how about we just kill them instead and that's where Eric stops all of those missiles. And unfortunately, in the process, like he, he turns them back on the um, combined Russian-American forces. And Moria takes it upon herself to try to shoot him. And he's like, metal bullets. Deflect, deflect. And then he sends one of them right into uh, Xavier's back. Yeah, this is, this is when he, you know, becomes our... The wheelchair-bound guy that we that we know that we're more familiar with because he's I, I didn't mention it because it didn't you know you don't really think about it but he was walking through this film prior to this moment ah yeah that's true yep he was up in you know up on two legs all the way up to this moment which also now retcons another event because if you'll remember at the beginning of the last stand. He and Magneto got out of a car together and walked up to the Grey household. And that was supposed to be set in the late 80s. And yet here we are, 1962, paralyzing him. Yeah, they didn't know what they were. I don't know what they were doing. Like, it's not hard to figure out how to write a script where you incorporate the things you've already done. And I apologize if I sound a little 
annoyed. I love this movie. I think it's a great one. But there are just, there are things that you just, you, you can do correctly and other things you can do wrong. So anyway, you've got Xavier down. And so Magneto runs over to him real quick. And in his distracted state, the missiles don't get to their targets, which is a good thing for everyone involved. And in conclusion to this whole big standoff, the remaining members of the Hellfire Club, they decide to join up with Magneto, who's like, I still hold to Shaw's ideals, so join me to fight the humans for our right to exist. Whereas Xavier is like, no, we, we have to come to work together with them. We can't go to war with them. It's not how we should do this. There's this bit between Beast and Mystique. There had been some sort of budding relationship, and she sort of breaks his heart and Xavier's by joining up with Magneto. It's all played very interestingly. It's actually a pretty good scene overall, I'd say. It was just, it was very odd to do that while your friend is also kind of bleeding from a wound to his spine that you dealt him. But hey, whatever. It's a good thing you've got a doctor on hand, right? Anyway, we fast forward and... And in true Xavier unethical fashion, he just, well, men in blacks her and leaves her on the side of the road with fuzzy recollections of what she's been doing for like the last two weeks. And unfortunately, that kills her career at the CIA, um, or at least any upward mobility at the CIA, because everyone's like, ugh, we knew it, we couldn't trust a woman. Because hey, it's also 1962. They got that part right. Rampant sexism. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, Eric and his new group, they free Emma Frost from her imprisonment and Yeah, that's it. That's that's this one. It is a good one. I just So how about we hop right into our mid break and then we'll hop back out of it. Absolutely. With Kizik Can's free shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. All right, welcome to the mid-break. Thank you all for sticking with us. We appreciate your support. Um, if you would like to get involved, we have a Patreon, which a link for that will be in the description. We have several tiers. One, two of those tiers get you on the show at the end of the month, uh, tiers four and five. We would love to have patrons of that level to discuss uh, a topic that would be voted on that month as we currently do not have anyone at those tiers, so we don't have any patron chats. Yeah, we we want to interact with you guys, and we want to cover the topics that you guys want to talk about, so definitely think about joining us on the Patreon. But if you can't support us financially, you can always drop us a review on Apple or rating on Spotify. Five-star reviews we'll read out in this part of the show. We don't have any new five-star reviews at this time, and I do want to take a second just to say that we are going to cover, I don't know if we've said it before, but we're going to cover all of the MCU films that are, you know, part of the current continuity. And we're going to talk about, you know, for instance, Andrew Garfield and, and Tom Holland, and we'll cover those Spider-Man films, but we just haven't gotten there yet. We're going in order so that we can give a full history of the MCU, um, and we don't want to miss anything. In, indeed. And if you are just like, well, I want to talk about a Tom Holland movie now, you can always hit us up on Twitter, Insta, Facebook, or the Robots Radio Discord, where we have a channel specifically for this show. A link for that Discord will be also in the show description. And speaking of shows on the Robots Network, uh, tell us about your other show, Shanko. Absolutely. I also do a show called The Fight Space. It is a martial arts podcast, one of the only female-led martial arts podcasts on the internet. And I have a really great time doing fighter interviews and discussing martial arts at length. 
with a whole range of people within the combat sports community. So if you're interested in all of that, definitely think about giving the fight space a shot. We'd absolutely love to talk to some more people and get some more perspectives. It's been a really good time. And you also have another show on the Robots Radio. Indeed. You can find me on the Mass Effect Blue Shift podcast. It's a tabletop RPG that utilizes the Fate system. We play Citadel security agents solving crimes on the Citadel. I play dashing human agent Jack Parizo. It's a lot of fun. Episodes drop monthly on the first Friday of the month. We just dropped part one of, hopefully, two episodes on a raid on a like gang hideout. So should check that one out and then be ready at the beginning of March for the conclusion of that. And you know what? I believe that is it for our mid-break. So let's go into all these characters. Okay, I have a whole 10 characters to get through, so I promise to not take up too much time, but it's going to take us a minute. Starting with our villains, we have, and I'm going to butcher this, so just bear with me because I don't normally have to say his actual name. Um, Janos Wested, a.k.a. Riptide. He was introduced in Uncanny X-Men number 210 in October 1986 by Chris Claremont, John Romita Jr., and Dan Green. In the comics, he is a member of the Marauders, which is Mr. Sinister's little team of bad guys. They are typically sociopaths and all-around murderers. He has been killed and cloned multiple times, and it is vaguely figured that he also, like, Sinister brings in the memories of previous clones, as Riptide has a distinct memory of one of his first deaths where he had his neck snapped by Colossus. And every time he sees Colossus, he starts rubbing it. So it's, that's actually a really good callback in the comics. He's just like, oh, yeah, I remember that. That sucked. But yeah, he's never been a member of the Hellfire Club. So it was an interesting choice to bring him over for this movie. Next, we have Azazel. No other identity known. He was introduced in Uncanny X-Men number 428 in August 2003 by Chuck Austin and Sean Phillips. He's an immortal mutant with supposedly demonic origins called Nephilim or Nyaphlim? Nyaphim. I'm going to go with Nyaphim. I don't know. I don't normally have to say these things out loud. You just kind of read them and move on. It's a word. It's, it's a word and it's not Nephilim or anything else I recognize. His look is what I described in the movie. Red-skinned, prehensile tail, teleporting ability, so with pointy ears. So if that sounds like any particular mythos, you know, devil, you know, that would be kind of where that came from. And his comic counterpart has tried to take over various hell-like realms, including going up against Mephisto at one point. He is trapped in this brimstone dimension, which is the dimension that uh, Nightcrawler taps into when he's teleporting as well. But he can make small excursions out into the world. And when he does that, his whole point is to, well, sire children. That is literally why he's out there. So he's had several kids of course, over time, and he tries to use them to create a permanent portal for him to leave the brimstone dimension. Oddly enough, out of all the women he's had, you know, with him, he's only seemed to care about Mystique, who is the mother of Nightcrawler, and which would be what the movie appeared like it was trying to set up with Mystique and Azazel, though they did absolutely no, like, setup with that. It's just, it's implied because if you're a fan, you know that Mystique is the mother of Nightcrawler, and then you've got a teleporting, devil-looking character with a prehensile tail. So it's like, oh, so eventually those two will get together. Like, that's as far as it gets in the movie. And then, like you, like you said, they, they do nothing with it after that. In fact, they play up the Mystique and Magneto thing more than just about anything. Uh, yeah, yeah. Obviously, the movie feel like they were trying to they were trying to do a philosophical battle with 
Mystique's soul. Like, she's the foster sister of Xavier, right? Taking the place of the stepbrother, Kane Marco, aka the Juggernaut. So that's kind of what they were doing here. And what they were doing in the movie is, hey, we've got Xavier's pacifistic kind of way of thinking, and we've got Magneto's, we let's just kill them all mentality. And they kind of fight over Mystique. And ultimately, the idea is Magneto wins that fight. And he kind of does it by flirting with her. Or she interprets it as flirting. It's really hard to tell. But yeah, they definitely play up some sort of... not. It's not mentor-mentee relationship. It's designed to be something else. Perfection. Yeah. Alright, next up on our bad guys is... Angel Salvador. She was introduced in New X-Men number 118 in November 2001 by Grant Morrison and Ethan Van Skyver. In the comics, she joins Magneto's new brotherhood after being a student at Xavier's for some time. Um, long enough, actually, for the very young adult to have kids with fellow student Beak. She has fly morphology powers. So that includes that, you know, when she has children, she lays eggs. It, as mutations go, this one was an odd one, as is uh, her partner, Beak. In the comics, she loses her powers after the M-Day event, though recently she has regained them by unknown means. It's unclear as to how she got them back. Superhero science. Uh, yeah, we're going to go with that. Um, for a little while, she st served on the New Warriors team under the codename Tempest, where literally superhero science is what she was using. She had tech that gave her fire, ice, and flying abilities. And again, like that's wildly different than what she had been doing with her mutant powers. But at least the movie stayed true to she joins the good guys for a little while, and then she joins the bad guys. And then once the bad guys are defeated, she kind of... Like, goes back to the good guys. Up next is one of my favorite characters, Emma Frost. She was introduced in The Uncanny X-Men number 129 in January 1980 by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. She served as the White Queen of the Hellfire Club for years, uh, off and on over the decades, currently on for the Krakoa event. For most of that time, she was just a telepath. And during Morrison's run, she gained her diamond skin ability during a massive sentinel attack on Genosha, where she had been teaching under Magneto's rule. Morrison needed someone of Colossus's ability, the steel turning the skin thing, or skin turning to steel thing, but Colossus had just died saving everyone from the legacy virus, so he didn't bring him back for that. He just created secondary mutations and gave one to Emma Frost. That's a choice. Well, as an uppity Boston socialite, like, her turning into Diamond sort of actually makes sense. At least a little bit. Yeah, but we didn't really get any depth in the film from her. No, we didn't. That was another massive misstep on this, on this movie's part. She's a multifaceted character, and she was dumbed down to a... Nice blonde perm and a tight white corset. When she's got a scene where Shaw sends her out for ice and literally she has to go outside of the sub, hit up one of the ice glaciers and get him fresh ice. And she's got this look on her face of, I could, I am better than this. And honestly, I don't think that was January Jones acting. I believe that was her fully like, this is what, I'm doing like I cannot believe this is my life right now I have to imagine when she was presented with the role she might have gone to the source material and read a few things and said oh this is a really interesting and dynamic character who does some interesting things and then she reads a script and it's like oh I have to get Kevin Bacon ice yeah she deserved better I would I highly doubt she would come back for it now or any kind of other thing. So if they were to ever do Emma Frost again, I would really like for them to get it right next time. 
All right, last of our bad guys is actually the man we were just talking about, Sebastian Shaw. Introduced in the Uncanny X-Men number 129 in January 1980 by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. That should sound familiar, because I just said that about Frost. They introduced the Hellfire Club at the same time. In the comics, the energy he absorbs goes into enhancing his physical strength, not into directed energy as seen in the movie. He has been a long-standing villain of the X-Men until recent events. However, he is not, nor has ever been, a Nazi war criminal or a geneticist. I feel like they pulled a little, like, Mr. Sinister to add into the Sebastian Shaw character that they created for this movie. It's the Alexander Pierce effect. Yeah! And we're gonna have to get that on a mug or something. The Alexander Pierce effect. Yes. (laughs) They had someone who somewhat resembled a bad guy that they wanted and said, well, how about we just pull all these other things and just kind of throw it together instead of, I don't know, just making Mr. Sinister the bad guy. I mean, Bacon would have been perfect for that, too. Don't get me wrong. He was great as a villain. Um, Kevin Bacon was in the Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special. Yes, as himself. Yes, as himself. But I just, um... Raises some funny questions for me, like, uh, I guess he really has been keeping himself young with his powers because he's now in the future, cutting loose, footloose, with with Chris Pratt. Yeah, you don't bring Sebastian Shaw to a Christmas party, though. I feel like he'd be a real downer. Yeah, he'd, he'd be trying to scheme his way or something. And that is, I mean, that is what Shaw is in a nutshell. He's a schemer. That's what the Hellfire Club does. Um, they aren't. They aren't fully about mutant su- superiority. They are about running things from the shadows and, and doing stuff that way. But, oh well, it worked for this movie. I wouldn't say it was great choices. It just, it worked enough. Moving on to our heroes. We have up first is Armando Munoz, a.k.a. Darwin. He was introduced in X-Men Deadly Genesis number 2 in February 2006 by Ed Burabaker and Pete Woods. In the comics, he is an albino of Afro-Hispanic origins. So it was good they got a man of color. It was just odd they didn't take the physical mutation forward with that. Anyway, uh, his introduction is finding out that he was part of a team between the first class of X-Men and the uncanny team that went to Krakoa. This team included New Mutants Petra, Sway, and a third Summers brother, Kid Vulcan. During their attempt at rescuing the first team from the island, this team died. It killed Petra and Sway, and to survive the attack, Darwin became energy and was absorbed by Vulcan. He also absorbed sort of the powers of both Petra and Sway as he was being absorbed into Vulcan. So Vulcan was able to utilize some time powers, some earth powers, and his own energy stuff to basically make himself a cocoon on the island. And then they all seemingly perished. The story was to illustrate how unethical Professor Xavier was slash is because... At the end of the day, we all find out he's not the kindly old man. He's a man who doesn't just make mistakes. He gets kids killed on the regular. So good on you, Professor Xavier. Grade A teaching skills. (laughs) Yeah. Talk about trial by fire. Right. And it also lends to why they went, why his second team, the Uncanny team, is full of adults. Wolverine, Storm, Colossus, Nightcrawler, they're all they're all adults of uh, who have gotten kind of a hold on their powers rather than a bunch of kids. <laughs> Gee, you mean to tell me that you can't just send children into battle? It, what? I know. Stupid labor laws. <laughs> I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> During Deadly Genesis, he is he is removed from Vulcan and he uh, resumes a uh, corporeal form. They do a bunch of stuff. He is still kind of operating sort of in the new stuff. But I would say that the movie 
absolutely did Darwin dirty by just introducing him and then killing him as a means to show you how real the stakes are. Because if you can kill the guy who can supposedly survive anything, and he can survive anything, he has survived the vacuum of space for almost days. He has survived being just about any kind of death that you can imagine. He has survived it one way or another. And yet you mean to tell me he couldn't survive a little energy globule tossed into his mouth? Like, come on. He didn't reconstitute himself or or turn his energy in expelling it outward or whatever. Like, no, no, just blow him up. It's fine. It also doesn't help that he was also one of the only people of color on the team. And oh, well, let's just kill him. I like this movie. I have to keep reminding myself that because it is fun. It is good. It's just it does a lot of not great things and it frustrates me. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's there's not been one that's gotten it 100% perfect. There have always been glaring issues with everything, even the ones we really like. Even, you know, you with the good ones, too, it's worth mentioning the things they do wrong because a lot of them seem like active choices that were made. That didn't need to be. True. Moving on to our one of our last guys, Sean Cassidy, a.k.a. Banshee. Introduced in The X-Men number 28 in January 1967 by Roy Thomas and Werner Roth. In his introduction, he is an older man. Uh, he would go on to serve on the Uncanny team until his throat was crushed, whereupon he decides to stay on Mirror Island with Mora, who he had been developing a romantic relationship with. For years after that, he would just be kind of a supporting character, popping around books, until his death in X-Men Deadly Genesis, where he left behind his adult daughter, Teresa, who had been going by the codename Siren at the time, and later picks up Banshee in honor of him. That is obviously not who Sean Cassidy was in this movie, as he was a dumb teenager, much like the rest of the team, and in fact did very little in the movie, I would say. Like, he's he flies using sonic screams. I don't know, it's really hard for me to pin down exactly, like, he's got his moment where he, like, learns to fly, but beyond that, I, as to, like, the plot of the movie itself... He doesn't exactly bring a whole lot to the table. No, I mean, I think more than anything, he added an extra scene to the training montage. Yeah, yeah that's about it. Which, again, was kind of a shame of a character, you know, not like a waste, but just, you've got Sean Cassidy and you've got Mora in the same movie. And they are, um, there's like a decade of age between them and not in the good way. Because <laughs> he's like 16 compared to her like late 20 late 20s and so there's like there's no way to capture the comic book you know relationship there without it getting really weird speaking of really weird alex summers aka havoc introduced in the x-men number 54 in march 1969 by arnold drake and don heck he is the younger brother of scott summers and he's usually partnered with Lorna Dane, a.k.a. Polaris. Why did we pull the younger brother into the 60s when we have clearly established Scott Summers as a young adult in the 2000s? My head hurts sometimes. It's his brother-grandpa. <laughs> his grandbro. Like, either, yeah, like, there's just no good way around it by the... There's just not. His power was flashy, and um, like as they, I, I don't know if they stated it right in the in the movie, but in the comics, he can absorb cosmic energy and he redirects it out, usually in concentric rings, either from his hands or from his chest, which is flashy and cool, but it's not like whatever. Uh, it's whatever, and I don't even get his costume even remotely right, other than the like, thing on his chest. He's got a much cooler outfit than that. Okay, last up is Moira Mattaggart. She was introduced in The Uncanny X-Men number 96 in December 1975 by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum. 
She was a geneticist, not a CIA agent. She's a major supporting character and ally of the X-Men, spending years working with mutants. She is the mother of mutant sociopath Proteus, who is a al reality-altering sociopath, major enemy of the X-Men. Nothing about her character says anything about its movie counterpart, and I wonder why she's here, other than to look good in some black lingerie for her first scene. Wait, wait, you want a woman in a film to have substance? What? I, I know, that's so, like, counter to everything that I'm told I'm supposed to want as a man from my movies. But yes, I would like the women in the movies I watch to have character and substance. Please. Yeah, no, I agree, because I think most of the women that we've seen portrayed across the Marvel films, like, this is not just an issue within X-Men. They've been at times relegated to the eye candy or the messenger or the minor role or the throwaway character or the one that's just there because we need someone with boobs. Yeah. And it's sad. Like, I I was talking about, like, I've introduced three women for this movie who have rich backstories and Angel's a stripper. Emma Frost is just there to look good and white and Mara Mara doesn't do much of anything other than get Xavier paralyzed inadvertently but that's what she does most of our character development is all left to Mystique that's that's who gets the most screen time and I don't even know why we're trying to make Mystique the face of the X-Men because Jennifer Lawrence yeah hope that eight hours a day in makeup was worth it I think I think they got it slimmed down to like three or four by later films, but yeah, I I also heard a really funny kind of like jokey story from the cast where every time she had to go to the bathroom, she'd leave blueprints on the toilet seat. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 mean. That's sad. The poor girl. Yeah. I would say that you couldn't pay me enough to be uh, painted blue. Uh, and, and covered in, like, tiny stick-on scales. That's simply not the case, Marvel. If you're listening, please, paint me blue and put a bunch of little scales all over me. I'm begging you, please. <laughs> Marvel, you have your new Mystique right here. Just hit us up. Um, I am much more punchy than prior Mystiques. I mean, both, both um, Rebecca and uh, Jennifer, I mean, they went through extensive training, uh, Lawrence is working out daily to, you know... Oh, no, for sure. Stay fit for all of it, um, which is an un almost unhealthy expectation for for actors. Uh, we can discuss the, you know, the, the problems of media on body image later, but if you want to hear about uh, the other major characters we've covered, which was Beast, Mac uh, Mystique, Magneto, and Perez... Professor Xavier. I cover those guys all in their introductory movies. Not probably to the same extent that I have been, as we've gotten better with this setup and whatever. I've been able to feel more uh, comfortable talking about all the little bits that these characters do. So, like, I know Magneto and Xavier, they don't have quite the depth that I've just given on several of these other characters. But at the end of the day, what more need to be said on them? Magneto is a terrorist. He's killed God knows how many people. Professor Xavier was first set up to be this great, kind, not necessarily kindly. He was very strict, actually. Uh, and I would say Stewart is the one who kind of made him a much more approachable character than his co comic counterpart. But in the comics, even still, he wasn't particularly great. In issue three, he admits to himself that he's in love with Jean Grey, which I will tell you right now, uh, being in love with one of your 16-year-old wards when you are a 30-something-old man is uh, a problem, capital P. Yeah, there's another word for it that starts with a P. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm glad we don't ever see that side of Xavier in either Stuart or McAvoy's Xavier's. McAvoy played up a very egotistical driven Xavier absolutely 
He was more about using his powers for what he wanted rather than for the greater good. And it's not until after his encounters here and being put into a wheelchair that he realizes that, oh, you know, maybe we should be trying to do something more for mutant kind than uh, getting ahead in genetics or whatever. It's a shame that doesn't really go anywhere, but it is what it is. And I say that, I mean, you know, obviously he founds the X-Men, the school and all that. But for the upcoming future, we find a very different Xavier than uh, what was left for, with us here at the end. For the days of future past is a very wild ride. And I'm definitely looking forward to covering that next week. Do we have any final thoughts on First Class? Honestly, no, because this one was like, with our glaring grievances put aside, this one was a good time and definitely one that made me a little bit more excited going into the rewatch than some of the prior films. I, I mean, I genuinely enjoyed going back and watching Logan, but oh, yeah. let's face it, if I, never, if I never load up Origins Wolverine again, I'm not going to feel any kind of way about it. <laughs> I'm not going to feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> Freak pool. <clears throat> oh, sorry. Jesus. I've had that one on my chest for a while. I need a need a lozenge. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, thank you, everyone, and have a great night. <laughs> night, everyone. As we all know, when it comes to making a movie, there are a lot of people working behind the scenes to make that movie magic happen. And it is no different when making a podcast. Welcome to the credits section of the MCU Lorecast. Captain Shanko and I would like to personally thank the following for their incredibly hard work and faith in us to get this podcast rolling. Tom, the head of the Robots Radio Network, for hosting and mentoring. N7 Legend of the Mass Effect Lorecast for inspiration. Genesis and Vervada of the Two Girls One Ship podcast for introducing us. Let's Not, a fellow tabletop gamer and friend for the amazing artwork. Pipe Men, a veteran and friend for the outstanding music. Our significant others for believing in and supporting us through this. And you, our fans, without whom this would be a vanity project. Let us know how we're doing by leaving us a review on Apple or a rating on Spotify. And to quote Stan the Man... Enough said. Are you a fan of Elden Ring? Are you confused about the lore as pretty much everyone else? We've got you covered. Check out the Elden Archives, a lore podcast that helps to explain every little confusing detail about the lands between. Things like what exactly happened on the Night of the Black Knives, or what we really know about characters like Mikola. Just like the show you're listening to now, we're on the Robots Radio Network, so you know it'll be good. Wondering how to find the show? Easy. Either go to robotsradio.net or search Elden Archives on whatever podcatcher you're using right now. Bookmark the show for later and we'll see you in the lands between. Again, that's The Elden Archives, a FromSoft Lorecast, available everywhere.